Why don't we turn our Bibles this evening to Proverbs chapter 6 as we continue our journey through the book of Proverbs together. We got partway into chapter 6 last time, and as you're turning there, let me just ask God to prepare our hearts. Father, as we are opening our Bibles now and turning the pages uh, of the Scripture, Lord, we're just uh, really thankful that, Lord, you have given to us the Word of God to be a lamp for our feet and a light for our paths. And Lord, we know that we're living uh, in a dark world and it seems that the days, Lord, are only scheduled to get darker and we know the darkness within our own heart and mind at times, Lord. So we're so thankful as you tell us in Psalm 119 that the entrance of your word gives light. So tonight, Lord, we are here. We're here to draw near to you, draw near to us now through the word of God, speak things that we all need to hear, Lord, uh, certainly some real direct and uh, somewhat heavy things that you say in this section of your word, but may your spirit equip us that we might live safe and healthy lives that you intend for us and be able to just disseminate this truth to others around us who need to hear such things to live beneficial lives rather than destructive lives as well. So Lord, strengthen our bodies now and speak to us by your Spirit's ministry through the Word of God we ask in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Proverbs chapters 1 through 9, as we've been going through them together, we've noticed that in this first section, as we talked about when we began the study, that Solomon here is really trying to emphasize above all else just the importance of wisdom and the real need and value that wisdom brings to all of our lives. And as we've been talking about, uh, wisdom is the ability to know how to live life skillfully. It's not knowledge, it's not facts, it's not information, but it's the ability to know what to do in given situations, how to live well, how to make good decisions, how to be a good steward with the different areas and arenas of our lives, how to just in some ways function with, we might say, practical common sense, good decision making, how to handle situations, how to interact in relationships, really so that we experience God's best. And God is a loving father. He cares about us. He doesn't want to see us harm ourselves. And we all have the propensity to be like sheep that wander, and we all have the capacity to make bad decisions. Again, one of the Proverbs that we're going to see that shows up twice as we get in chapter 10 and onward, we start getting to those kind of short little, uh, you know, kind of clever, memorable statements, little nuggets of wisdom. One of those Proverbs is going to say that there's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. Uh, and God mentions and restates that proverb two times. And again, it wasn't because God could not, in his incredible capacity of wisdom, think about something novel to say, that he thought, I just can't think of something new. Why don't I just put this one again? The reason God restated it is because when God repeats himself, there's a purposeful reason. He wants to make sure we don't miss something. And one of the things God wanted to make sure that we heard at least twice was that very thing, that there is a way at times that seems right to us but it's actually a self-destructive and a, a deadly path that we can all think wrongly, we can see things wrongly, and we can go astray. And therefore, God gives to us this wonderful book right in the middle of the Bible all about wisdom and how to have good understanding, to navigate life well so we can avoid regrets and pain and sorrow. And many of us all can yes and amen to that because we've all done that. We've experienced that, many of us, at times in our lives. And that, Lord willing, we can make better decisions and experience a more healthy and beneficial way that God wants us to live out all of our lives. So in these first chapters, he's really trying to emphasize the value of wisdom, the need of wisdom, and the great benefit it brings to our life. And we've seen a lot of Solomon really just emphasizing, my son, listen to me, pay attention. Again, you have the older generation speaking to the younger generation, trying to impart wisdom, and, and, and a father trying to speak to his son to try and help his son be able to do life well rather than have pain and regret. So as we come into chapter 6, verse 16, which is where we pick up this evening, we get this very unique statement here where he starts out in verse 16 by telling us these six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. Now, 
as we hear this statement, these six things the Lord hates, for some of us, that may almost kind of grate against your human logic and think, wait a minute, that's a strong word, hates. I mean, God's loving and he's kind and he's gracious. I mean, hate is a pretty intense word. Well, yes, it is. And God has no problem declaring in his word because he is good and actually because he is loving and he is incredibly caring that there are certain things that he does indeed hate, things that he actually despises or detests, things that are actually, the Bible says, an abomination to him. The idea is they're despicable, they're disgusting, they are things that God detests because they are things that hurt humanity and God cares about us. And so because of that, there are occasions we find in the word of God where God specifically says there are certain things that he hates. One of the things he'll say in the prophet uh, Malachi is he'll say that one of the things he hates is divorce. doesn't say he hates the divorced. God loves the divorced. God's heart breaks for those who are divorced, but God hates the process of divorce because he knows the incredible tearing and pain and baggage and separation and all the hardship it causes not only to the two spouses but then to the children if they're connected to it and all the family members and everyone connected to that whole situation so there are things that god clearly says i hate those things like because i hate what they do to humanity it breaks my heart and it saddens me, the, the pain and the heartache and the things that go on and the way that people behave in those situations. And so here we are told that we're going to get somewhat of a list, six things the Lord hates. And then again, sort of the poetic language, seven. And the idea of, again, remember, seven is the number of completion. So there's seven days in a week, seven notes in a scale. So again, the idea of seven in the scripture is always a completeness. And so he's saying, these things are things that are completely things that God hates and are an abomination to him. And look, I, let me just say this, and again, this is just my little note of speculation here, and I try not to do such. So I don't know if it's necessarily an exhaustive list, but it is a specific list. So one thing is true. These are seven specific things God says he hates and are an abomination to him. Whether the list is exhaustive, I don't know, because again, Malachi, I just mentioned, already tells us another thing that God hates. Jesus says in the New Testament that he hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which is basically a description, it seems, of those who were in spiritual leadership and they were conquering and controlling the laity or the common people. The word nico means to conquer, laitans, laity, the common. And so the idea is it seems that spiritual leaders were abusing their power in the early church. Some were. And Jesus said, I hate when people who are shepherds behave that way, when they abuse the sheep, control the sheep, manipulate the sheep, and use their God-given spiritual authority to abuse and manipulate God's blood-bought sheep. Jesus' blood-bought bride. And Jesus said, I hate that. I can't stand when, when those who are in spiritual leadership would conduct and use their authority in an unhealthy way. So... I don't know if the list is exhaustive, but let's not miss it's very specific. And if God says he hates something, I kind of want to try and stay away from that. I don't know about you. <laughs> the Bible tells us to love the things God loves and hate the things that God hates. And well, these are things that we know God says he hates, he detests. The first thing he mentions at verse 17 is a proud look, then a lying tongue. And notice how there's all the references to different parts of the human body here. Again, that shows you that sin can originate from so many different areas. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart. So it's, again, not only what we do, but sometimes there's sins within the heart that God sees. Jesus talked about, you know, if you hate someone in your heart or you commit adultery, as we'll talk about tonight. And he says, even at times in your heart, not the actual action but you've lusted in your heart. Jesus said it's the same thing. It's akin to literally going through with the act from God's perspective. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies. And it seems that this is the culmination because he comes back to this from our prior verses when he mentioned those who sow discord. And here he adds the emphasis, one who sows discord among the brethren. Now, 
He mentions seven things here. First of all, that God hates or detests a proud look. And a proud look or pride basically is to view yourself as above. In essence, that's what pride is. It's a superior outlook toward yourself where you view yourself as superior to others. And typically when pride arises in our hearts, that's what happens. We are viewing ourselves in some way as more superior or more important or more entitled than others, and then the result of that is pride and arrogancy makes us mistreat people. So when pride is at work in our hearts, it causes us to have an outlook towards others that is not humble and caring and considerate, and pride is when we have that inflated view of the superiority of ourself or our rights or our importance, and therefore we, in a a twisted way, then utilize that to justify our mistreatment of people. And God says, I hate when there's a proud attitude, a proud viewpoint in the hearts of humanity towards others. And think again, throughout the scriptures, all the many examples, Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar, and these were just world leaders of the, the things they did in their arrogance and their pride. It was the, 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 the mother of all sins, really, remember, because Satan was misguided by the pride in his own heart. And so in many ways, pride becomes, I believe, like it's like the mother that gives birth to all other sins. Uh, and, and Satan himself was guilty. So God says, I hate when there's that proud viewpoint in humanity that makes them justify mistreating one another. Another thing God says that he hates and detests is a lying tongue. So a lying tongue is when we misconstrue information in order to selfishly in some way manipulate things to our advantage. That's what a lying tongue does. A lying tongue is whenever in any way, in some personal way in our own life or happening through some media outlet or through some business or through, I mean, whatever it may be, a lying tongue is when we misconstrue information to selfishly manipulate a situation in such a manner to your own advantage, to work through lies, through deception, through misguiding one person or many people to do something for your own selfish advantage. And God says, I hate lying. Why? Because it's destructive. It's destructive. Remember what Jesus said of the devil? He said the devil has been a liar from the beginning. He's the father of all lies, and when he lies, he speaks his native language. So already in the first two things, I can understand why God says he hates such things, because if I have pride in my heart and I'm lying, I'm acting just like the devil, I can understand why God's not real pleased with that, why he would so strongly say, I hate if you act like that. I hate if you conduct yourself in that way. The third thing he mentions that God has strong hatred towards and a deep sort of abomination, a detestament towards, he says, is hands that shed innocent blood. Now take notice, hands that shed, and take notice of the the emphasis, innocent blood. He's not talking about justified warfare. He's not talking about self-defense. I mean, there are other ways that blood is shed, right? The Bible tells us in the book of Genesis, even God's original indication regarding what I believe is a reference to capital punishment when God says that if man sheds blood, by man his blood shall be shed. In other words, that when God says a person sinks on the earth to such a low view of their fellow man that they despise the the sanctity of life, the image bearer that human beings are, and they are willing to kill another human being, God says the best way to resolve that is if they have sunk to that level that is actually best for their life to be put to end as well as the proper judgment towards that. I can tell you one of the reasons God knows that's wise is because God believes in what's called deterrent. Our judicial system doesn't seem to recognize that anymore. And then we wonder why we have repetitious, continuous, constant, ongoing, growing crime. Because when there is no deterrent, people have no fear of doing what's wrong. Oh, well, I mean, I'll just, but, but, you know, it'll be this, this, that, and I'll jump through, the, push the button, and then I'm back out and I can go do it again. Or there's nothing to, and so God says, not only is it a deterrent, God also says that this is a way to justify, and again, listen, that doesn't mean that someone can't be saved. It doesn't mean that someone can't accept Jesus Christ, receive forgiveness of their sins, but God said that capital punishment was the way to properly deal with individuals in the situation of murder or shedding innocent blood. 
And again, God takes the sanctity of life very seriously. You read through the book of you know, Genesis, right now I'm going through Genesis in my devotions, and when God is going through the creation account, you notice the only time God says, let us make in our image and our likeness, it's not cats and dogs and your fish, and, and, and it's human beings. Only human beings does God put such a special honor and privilege upon that he says they are image bearers made in the likeness of the Trinity of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that we reflect the image of God. And because there's such a value to human beings, God says here that he hates, literally, hands that shed innocent blood, that when it happens, again, the idea is just hurting or killing people. Again, shedding innocent blood necessarily doesn't mean automatically death. I mean, you can shed innocent blood and a person not die, but certainly death is the worst case scenario. So here God's saying that he despises when as human beings we hurt or kill people who've done no wrong and are completely defenseless, that of innocent blood. They're defenseless. We're not rendering judgment to them. It's not self-defense. It's not warfare. These are defenseless, innocent human lives who are hurt or ultimately killed. And of course, we, you know, as much as the gravity of it is what it is, we recognize probably one of the clearest ways, verse 18 is perpetuating itself in our culture. And look, not that we don't have an issue with violence and murder in our cities and, and, and in our society, but the way that we have been probably more guilty of this in the recent generations of humanity is through our abortion industry. And the numerous times where we have just become so tolerant of this as if it's just no big deal. You know, I just read an article recently, and you're welcome to go check it out yourself. I just found it, you know, thinking of what God's saying here. These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. God takes this pretty seriously. And I just read an article recently where the, you know, Nancy Pelosi literally used the word that she believes that us taking away the right of women to have access and opportunity to get abortion, she said, this is utterly sinful. Pardon me? Numerous times, use the word in her speech. I was so blown away, I went to her website. I just wanted to make sure that it wasn't whatever fake news is or whatever that's called. Literally, it's right there, the script of what her speech was, which means that was, it wasn't like she said it on the fly. Literally use the word numerous times. This is utterly sinful that we are taking away reproductive freedom and women's rights to be able to do what they want with their bodies and their pregnancies. This is utterly sinful. And I thought to myself, how much more can you spit in the face of, of God? I mean, to say that, to use that word, pick any other word. But to, to say it's sinful to not allow people to shed the blood of innocent lives, I mean, just the, the sadness of that. I mean, look, in all of these things, you know, thank goodness for the blood of Jesus Christ and forgiveness and grace. I mean, for all of these things, I mean, any one of us here cannot read from verse 17 and 19 and not say guilty somewhere. And in God's eyes, look, sin is sin. And thank goodness for the blood of Jesus and forgiveness that we've all transgressed and done things that God hates and despises. And if anything, that should just make you and I way more grateful for Jesus, really, to realize, man, I did some things that God says he hates that are an abomination to him. I mean, if I read from verse 17 and 19, I could probably go back within the last month and go, I've made God hate, you know, hate a few things I did. My proud attitude here, or times when I did that, or you know, at times I was you know behaving in ways where I was speaking and saying things, and I was causing division between people or something. And again, God says these are things that I I greatly, greatly despise. He says a heart that devises verse eighteen wicked plans. So there, a heart devises wicked plans. The idea is implementing ideas to introduce or spread wicked or ruinous results. Hearts that devise, notice it's the sin is in the heart, a heart that devises wicked plans. I almost wanted to write to myself there, new school curriculums, CRT in schools, gender identity classes for kindergartners and, 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 and perverse things teaching first and second graders. Hearts that devise wicked plans, writing this stuff out and then teaching it to our children to indoctrinate them with things that they don't even need to be learning about that at age level. 
You know, I know my daughter was a grammar school teacher. She's, of course, just had a baby now. You know, numerous folks in our fellowship are elementary, you know, teachers. And it is hard enough to just teach reading, writing, and arithmetic and keep them from bouncing off the walls. And now you want to give them all this other horrible stuff to have to try and pump into these kids' brains. I mean, just it, it's just absolutely tragic to me. I, I look at that verse there. It's a hearts that devising wicked plans. It's people writing this stuff who have wicked intentions. And again, the, the hatred that God feels towards those who devise these kind of plans to, again, propagate wickedness. That's all it really is. Feet that are swift to running to evil. The idea is someone who can't wait. They're ambitious to go do wrong things. They're not trying to run away from evil. Some people, he says, they're, they're actually, they love doing what's wrong. They can't wait to go and do what's evil. Verse 19, he mentions, sixthly, a false witness who speaks lies. There, the idea is the false witness speaking lies. Those who change the story or adjust the facts, right, because that's what witnesses do. They're supposed to give accurate testimony of a situation. But a false witness is someone who changes a story or adjusts the details or the facts for gaining what's desired as a result. So instead of giving a true testimony about something, they put a spin on it or they change things because they want to manipulate people to bring about their end result instead. And God says, I hate that, deceiving and, and misguiding people and not just speaking the truth and letting things fall out where they may. And then the last thing he mentions there, which I think is very imperative as well, one who sows discord among the brethren. Again, sowing discord just speaks of being a trouble starter. Someone who says and does things that separate relationships. Notice he says sows discord, not just generally, he says among the brethren. That's a family term. That is people who say and do things that cause separations and divisions among family, whether it's biological family, whether it's God's family, the brothers and sisters in Christ, there are those who like sowing seeds through what they do, gossiping, backbiting, complaining, talking about people when they're not present, saying things. Oh, I can't believe they made that decision. Oh, I can't believe that. Can you believe it? And, and, and can you believe he did that? Oh, I, I know what they were, and, and they say things, and they just communicate, and what they're doing, they're just sowing seeds that just stir up division and discord and separation instead of speaking in ways to try and bring harmony. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Those who instead sow words and say, look, you know, it just, you know, Proverbs is going to say later on, that, you know, that he who answers a matter before he hears it, it's a folly and a shame to him. Another proverb is going to say that one man sounds right until his neighbor comes and cross-examines him. You know, it's, it's that old reality. There's, there's always three sides to every story, right? There's, there's, there's his side, her side, and then the truth. I, I get that in premarital counseling all the time. There's his side, her side, and then there's the truth somewhere in the middle. And in every situation, you know, this is what happens when people are sowing discord. They're just giving their side, their complaint, their bent. And some people, I mean, let me just be candid, they're just troublemakers. Some people literally are that sick and twisted. They actually enjoy stirring up trouble. They enjoy stirring up issues. And the Bible says that God hates when people do that. I mean, think about it. In the same list as liars and murderers, God puts people who are divisive, people who are sowing division and causing issues. Again, God wants us to be instead doing the opposite. God has a very strong attitude. He actually hates, it says, those who sow discord among the brethren. We ought to be very careful, certainly, in our lives regarding that. Verse 20, he goes on again, back to exhorting his young son, the younger generation. My son, keep your father's command, he says, and do not forsake the law of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. So again, he comes back to this same idea. We see the Holy Spirit just kind of re-emphasizing this, and it's very common in the book of Proverbs, which always keeps giving us this reminder. God says it's really wise when the younger generation receives instruction and wisdom and guidance and has a teachable attitude towards the older generation. We see this again and again, my son, listen to me, son, 
So again, there is both the responsibility upon us, whoever we are at whatever stage we're in, in the older generation. And look, all of us to some degree in this room have a, probably a generation, at least one, underneath of us. Whether it's the next generation of you know, you know, middle schoolers coming up or the next generation of high schoolers or young adults or as parents or as grandparents, there's always those below us. And so that we would have a heart and realize, look, God has called us. Titus 2 says that older women are supposed to teach younger women. And it's very interesting if you read what God says there. He says older women teach younger women. He doesn't say teach them how to succeed corporately. He says teach them how to manage their home, how to be homemakers, good moms, good wives, because God cares about the family. That's the root of everything. But again, there is this onus continually put upon the older generation to share. And so we see Solomon keep doing this, but just as important, my son, keep your father's command. Don't forsake the law of your mother. Mother, bind them around you. It is just as essential. And God says it is just as much wisdom, not just for the older generation to be intentional, to make sure they're teachers and instructors and not that we're not lazy about discipling and mentoring a two or three or five, whether it's our children or, or it's just some younger people around us that we're investing into them, but that the younger generation would actually listen. And they would say, you know, maybe I got some things to learn from you. And maybe what you tell me, again, the Bible says it's very wise for children to listen to their parents, to take advice, to receive guidance and, and counsel, again, that would come through them. You know, it's interesting, one of the Bible things the Bible tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3 regarding the last days, it says perilous times will come. And then the perilous times God describes aren't all the famines and the earthquakes there. The Holy Spirit describes issues in the heart of man. And one of the things he says that's a perilous thing coming in the last days, he says children will become disobedient to their parents. The idea is there's no more respect anymore for parental authority. Parents are stupid, they're worthless, rebel against them. And our society is even just encouraging that now. Hey, if you're 10, you have the right to make the decision. We don't need to talk to your parent. If you're 10, you don't need your, your don't listen to your parents' authority. You're 10. You know what you're doing. You're 10. We're not calling your parents. What do you want us to call you? Hey, whatever you say, your parent doesn't have any authority. And we are feeding a generation this idea that parental authority and parental wisdom and parental instruction is not a good thing, and we are setting ourselves up for a catastrophe, for a catastrophe, because God says it's really wise for a son to listen to his father's commands and not to forsake the law of his mother. Again, command speaks of instruction. A law speaks of a governing boundary. So God says, do you want to be wise if you're a young person? Listen to your parents' instruction and respect their authoritative governing boundaries. It'll keep you safe. And look, I know having raised children, many of you have raised children, we, we look at people. I tell you this, 99.9% of the times that kids get themselves into trouble, pain, and mistakes, almost all the time it's usually because they didn't listen to their parents. And they step outside of that boundary of what was taught to them or what was set up to protect them, and they make mistakes in their immaturity, and then the pain and the consequences. So God says, it's wise, listen. He says, bind them, hang on to those things. When you roam, he says, that advice will lead you. And when you sleep, they'll keep you, preserving you, protecting you. When you awake, they will speak with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the law a light. Now, this sounds much like Psalm 119. Again, God's word, even if we think of God speaking to us, my son, my son, as a fatherly role. Listen, keep God's commands. They're like a lamp. They light the way for us. They're like reproofs of instruction in the way of life. And sometimes we need to be reproved for God to challenge us, to call us out. Hey, what you're doing is wrong there. And God's word has a wonderful way of doing that. As we think of verse 23, I think this great testimony, God's word is, it's like a lamp for under our feet. It reproves us. It gives us instruction and how to do the way of life correctly and to correct us when we're doing the way of life wrong. And then he goes back to this theme, which will carry us all the way through to the end of chapter 7 that we saw heavily emphasized last week. He comes back to this theme of being careful and cautious not to fail in the area of sexual sin. And the pain and the heartache in chapters 5, 6, and 7, as we talked about, have a heavy emphasis in God's wisdom regarding 
not to fall prey to the human weakness and the strong potential we all have as human beings to fail in the area of sexual immorality in the many different ways that it can happen, particularly in these chapters. He's in this section, he's going to really talk about sort of, you know, protecting your marriage. You might say these last verses here in front of us here, you know, how to keep yourself from adultery, how to keep yourself from the regret of sexual sin, the pain and the sorrow. And, you know, when I go through verses like this, there's a part of me that I almost wish that every few moments in the, in the passage, I could have, you know, assembled a team of people that I've talked to over the years who can say, yep. That happened to me. That's exactly what it feels like. That's exactly the havoc it wreaked in my life. That's exactly the damage that it brought into me and to my family. And again, the, I mean, I think of people I've talked to over the years who could attest to the very things in these passages. That's exactly the pain, the catastrophe, the heartache. In the many ways, again, it's interesting, 1 Corinthians 6 tells us that sexual sin is the one sin where we bring damage against our own body. And so however that unfolds, it is just a very self-damaging thing. And again, God wisely through Solomon is saying, I love you. I don't want you to suffer. I, you know, I want you to be careful. And again, so here he says, follow my advice, son. Listen to my governing boundaries. Another reason he says, verse 24, he comes back to it now. It will keep you from the evil woman. We've seen her many times now. From the flattering tongue of the seductress. That is this woman who is operating in a way to seek to draw away the young man into sexual behavior that is sinful, that is wrong, that's going to bring destructiveness. And again, using the words, we're going to see using other methods as well to draw in to seduce this young man that his lust would pull him off track. He says, verse 25, do not lust after her beauty in your heart nor let her allure you with her eyelids. Now, no doubt the reason why the Bible emphasizes the eyelids there is because even in the days where they would wear veils in the ancient culture, the Egyptians and different cultures, that's why they put a lot of paint and makeup around the eyes because that was the way that you would use your eyes to you know, draw someone in here. He's just cautioning the young man saying, listen, there's much more to life. There's much more to beauty. Proverbs 31, he's going to say, charm is deceiving, deceitful, beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And he tries to emphasize there in, some, in the last chapter of Proverbs, look, beauty, it is, it is a little bit more than, than skin deep, son. Some of that inner beauty has way more value than you realize right now. But the struggle, the problem is in this area of just of the physical lust, the physical attraction, you know, the strong. And we saw this in chapter five. You know, God created the sexual drive. Chapter five, we looked at it. Many of you were blushing the whole time I was reading the verses as he was talking about the natural God-given sexual desire, which is intended to be satisfied within the boundaries of marriage. And God says there is an outlet Fulfill yourself, indulge yourself, satisfy yourself, but just do it in the boundary of the commitment with a life partner, a man with a woman in a safe, healthy, loving relationship. And if you do that, that's one of the greatest things God says that will keep you from these mistakes. And so again, he just cautions his son, look, you got to channel that lust, he says, son. Don't, don't begin to let your heart lust after her beauty, again, this seductive woman, many times they are, you know, very physically attractive, very beautiful. So he says, but be careful. Don't let her allure you. And that's what he says, verse 26, for by a means of a harlot, now that's a Bible term for a prostitute, for by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread. And an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Boy, what a fitting statement. By means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread. Boy, is that strong, a crust of bread, just a, you know, just a dry substance with no real meaning to it, just the crust of bread. The crust of bread, many times, are that which our little kids want us to cut off and throw out. Can you cut the crust off, Mommy? just reduced to a crust. And he says, look, this is what a woman can do to a man. She can literally, through luring him in, through sexual sin, through adultery, whatever kind of, reduce a man to a crust of bread 
And he says, be aware, some women, he says, and again, some men as well, you can certainly reverse it, they will prey upon your precious life. The word prey means predator. Isn't that a novel idea? And God is saying, look, there are some people who will seek to prey upon other people sexually. There are some people, I believe, even who have just a sick, distorted, inward bent where they actually find, let me just be more candid, I have talked to women before when I was a police chaplain. They actually find it a challenge to try and conquer a man, to try and overcome a man. Some, it's almost like this despisal towards men that I can conquer you by luring you in sexually and I will rule over you because I will reduce you to being under my power. And the Bible says, be careful. There are people who actually are, will prey upon other people, that they actually are looking. And look, if, if you're married this evening, ladies, let me just take note for you. There are people who may prey upon your husband. So you should pray for him when he goes to work every day. And if you find a lady like that, you should pray on her and pray her away and do whatever else you need to do to protect your husband and don't give her access and to guard your marriage, and to do what you can. Again, less casualties is certainly what the heart of God is. Look what he says, verse 27, to his son. Can a man take fire into his bosom, and his clothes not be burned? Can he walk on hot coals, and his feet not be seared? And then he says, the application, verse 29, so is he who goes into his neighbor's wife, whoever touches her shall not be innocent. The idea is shall not escape suffering. It's something sexual sin, committing adultery, whatever the form of it may be. He says, if you do such, you are not going to escape suffering. There is going to be suffering and pain and punishment attached to such things. He uses this very strong analogy there. Can a man take fire into his bosom or lap and his clothes not be burned? Again, the analogy is fitting. Can you reach down into a campfire and take some burning coals and toss them up into your lap or hug them in your bosom and think that somehow you're not going to catch yourself on fire and you're not going to get burnt in the process. He's saying, well, it's not rocket science. There's no way you can kind of get an exception in this situation. He's saying, son, if you play with fire, you're going to get burnt. And it's going to hurt. And when things catch on fire, it not just hurts, it brings damage and pain and destruction and scars that can sometimes linger for a lifetime. So he's simply saying in regards to sexual sin, son, please don't play with the fire. You're going to get burnt. You're going to get burnt. You know, I find it very interesting that the Holy Spirit chooses to use as an analogy for sex and sexual sin fire, because that's a very good description. Sex is a lot like fire. And a fire, if it's contained within a fireplace if it's in the proper boundary, it can be a wonderful thing, right? It can provide heat. You can cook with fire. Fire can be used to supply energy to do things. So fire is a wonderful thing in and of itself if it's channeled and kept in a proper boundary. But if you take that exact same fire and you take it just a slight bit out of the boundary and put it in the middle of the living room floor, that same fire now becomes dangerous, destructive, deadly, and can potentially be ruinous and harm a whole lot of lives. And sex is like fire. When it's in the boundary of a marriage, wonderful, beautiful, fantastic, useful thing. You take it outside, he says, you play with fire, you're gonna get burnt. You're gonna get burnt and it's gonna hurt. And again, I, I read these verses of men being reduced to a crust of bread, people being burnt through sexual sin. And how many lives I know of people who would say, Wow, yeah, yeah. I know men who I've watched be reduced to a crust of bread. Any of us who have made the mistake in any way of sexual sin at any point in our life, we know what it's like and the burn marks and the pain and the problematic results that it leaves in our lives. And again, God is saying here through his word to all of us and Solomon saying to his son, listen, you don't need to get burnt, son. And would to God that we would disseminate that message to people who haven't got burnt yet or to those who are playing with fire, who are married, who are playing with fire. They're playing with the matchbook. 
in relationships and God saying, do you really think you can play with fire and not get, don't please, God saying, before you burn the whole house down, put down the matchbook, get out of that situation, avoid the scenario, he says, if you go into your neighbor's wife, he says, you're not gonna get out of that innocent, you're not gonna escape suffering people, he says, verse 30, don't despise a thief, if he steals, to satisfy himself when he's starving. Yet, when he is found, he must restore sevenfold and have to give up all the substance of his house. Now watch the application he makes, verse 32. Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. Very strong language. Wounds and dishonor he will get, and his reproach will not be wiped away. For jealousy is a husband's fury, therefore he will not spare in the day of vengeance, taking revenge upon the man who's stolen his wife. He will accept no recompense. In other words, no repayment will be accepted for stealing someone's wife. Nor will he be appeased, though you give him many gifts. So notice, he draws this analogy here. And he uses stealing, like a thief stealing something in the marketplace and then he draws the same analogy, and he says adultery or sexual sin, that's basically akin to stealing as well. It's just a different form of stealing. And he says here, if a thief who's starving and hungry steals in the marketplace, he says, even though it's wrong, doesn't justify that in any way it's accepted, it is still wrong. To steal is wrong. And he says, and if that thief steals, they're still going to be punished, and they're going to have to restore what they've done wrong. And there's, but he says, but however, if somebody steals because they're starving for food, there may be a degree of understanding and compassion if a person looks upon their situation and says, hey, that guy was literally starving, and yeah, he stole some apples from the apple cart, and he shouldn't have done that, but I mean, the guy's starving, and he was desperate, and he made some mistakes. He was in a desperate situation, and he made mistakes, so there may be some compassion and understanding, but there's still consequences, he then draws the analogy to stealing in a different way, stealing in a sexual manner through adultery or sexual sin, and he says, there's no understanding for that. There's no compassion towards that. In other words, somebody may have compassion and understanding towards a thief who's starving, but there's never going to be a time where somebody's going to say, oh, I understand why you committed adultery. Now, people want us to say that, but there's never a justifiable reason for doing that. There's never any compassion towards the understanding of, well, okay, I, I guess you were entitled to cheat on your wife. Or, okay, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I guess it was acceptable for you to sleep with someone else's spouse. He's saying that doesn't exist. And he says, though a thief can repay for the apples he stole, he said there's no repayment. There's no repayment for adultery. In fact, he says there's a bunch of lingering pain and problems the tragedy is, he says, whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks, show they lack understanding. How do they lack understanding? They're not thinking about consequences. They're just thinking about the moment of sexual pleasure, and they're not thinking about the consequence that they're never going to get away with it, and that ultimately it is going to wreak havoc, because look what he says, verse 32. He destroys his own, not just his body, his soul. There's an inward destruction that comes with adultery. He says, verse 33, wounds and dishonor are the repayment of the adultery. And he says, and his reproach will not be wiped away. In other words, that reproach and disgrace and dishonor, the Bible's saying it will dog that person the rest of their life. The reproach of their adultery, of their sexual sin, can Jesus forgive? Absolutely. Thanks be to God for that, right? He can forgive anything and he can restore. But he says the wounds, the dishonor, the reproach, a lot of times that never gets wiped away because people just can't forget it. And so it kind of just like a stigma sticks with you the rest of your life and doesn't get wiped away. God can wipe it away. But with people, sometimes that doesn't happen. And he's saying, I'm trying to spare you, son. Don't do this to yourself. Don't put yourself through that painful process, through this horrible experience. And he says the, the jealousy of a husband is not something you're going to face. No husband's, well, let me just pay you back. Look, a, any loving husband would rather you steal all of his money than steal his wife. And so he says, you're going to get yourself into a lot of hassle and harm if you do such a thing. So he says, chapter 7, my son, keep my words. 
Treasure my commands, he comes back to within you. Keep my commands and live. And my law is the apple of your eye. In other words, the apple of the eye was the precious part of the inner eye, you know, that you were very sensitive to. So he's saying, be sensitive to my commands. Again, that we would be sensitive to wisdom, sensitive to the word of God and not just disregard it. Bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. Again, that's great insight there. Not just write them on a tablet, write them on the tablet of your heart. That The word of God, the wisdom of God would be engraved into our very inward being, that God's wisdom would direct us. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your nearest kin. Stay in close relationship with wisdom, he says. That, and again, here's why, verse 5, he comes back to it, that they may keep you, protect you from the immoral woman, from the seductress who flatters with her words. Notice the constant emphasis of the power of words, the seductress using her words. Why? Because God understands that the love language of a man is respect, Right? The Bible tells us, Ephesians 5, that, that, that husbands are to love their wives because the love language of a woman is, is to be loved sacrificially, to be cherished. And when she's loved and cherished, that's what makes a woman feel secure and she blossoms. For a, a man, God does not tell the wife the primary thing is to give your husband Hallmark cards. and He says, respect your husband. Honor his maleness. Submit to his leadership because that's something that is, that's what fills the tank of a man. So how interesting, because if a wife is always being nasty with her mouth and dishonoring her husband, and then the seductress comes along and says, boy, you look really nice today. You're so smart. You're so talented. And all of a sudden, the words begin to just lower his guard and lower his guard and lower his guard. And with words, she just draws him in little by little as the, the description here happens. The words of the seductress flattering him, drawing him in, bringing his defenses down. He's like, wow, she thinks I'm, yeah, she thinks I'm all that. And all of a sudden, right, every guy wants a cheerleader. Every guy wants to be a hero. And so all of a sudden, his defenses are going down. Look, he, he gives a description, verse 6. For at the window of my house, he says, I watched this happen, son. Let me tell you a story. At the window of my house, I looked out through the lattice, and I saw among the simple. The word simple means the naive, the unlearned. I perceived among the youths a young man devoid of understanding. So he says, here was the problem. This young man, because he was young, he was just devoid of understanding. And again, God is saying that's part of the struggle of being young is you gain understanding as you grow and as you mature. And he says this young man, he was devoid of understanding and, and this seductress capitalized on that, on his youthful immaturity, being driven by his lusts and not using good reasoning and understanding the destructiveness of sexual immorality. I saw him passing along the street near the corner, near her corner, and he took the path down to her house in the twilight, in the evening. So, boy, he's doing everything wrong. Remember the, a couple chapters ago, he said, don't even go near her house. Run, go the other way. Now he's hanging out on her corner. Then he's walking by her house. Then he's doing it at nighttime when nobody can see what's going on. I mean, boy, this is just setting up all the wrong scenarios in the dark of night. And there, verse 10, the woman met him, notice, with the attire of a harlot and a crafty heart. So here she comes out. The bait has been set, and now she comes out, and it says that she approaches him, notice, with the, I got it underlined, the attire of a harlot. Think about that for a moment, the attire of a harlot. A harlot dresses in a way that is intended purposely to expose herself and to advertise herself physically, to allure onlookers. And let's be very candid. It works, right? It works. The whole purpose why a prostitute or a harlot dresses in the way that she does with a certain attire is to expose herself and to advertise herself physically so that onlookers are aroused and allured and drawn in. And men predominantly are very visual creatures. And God understands this. 
And he says, the harlot understands this too. The seductress understands this too. And so some women will dress in a way because they know that's what's going to work. Look, I think this is very important. It's something that we should be very sensitive to in regards to particularly if you are a lady and understanding the eye gate of a man that you pay attention to how you dress. You want to dress a certain way for your husband's pleasure and benefit, that's Proverbs chapter 5. And you're more than welcome to do that, and I'm sure your husbands would say yes and amen to that. But I, the tragedy is, is we see ladies, and this is even sadder to me, we see young girls who are wearing clothes and dressing in a way, and I'm watching, listen, I raised three dollars in adulthood, and I'm thinking to myself, what are you thinking? Whether you're that night, you are advertising and exposing yourself, and you know you're getting attention. You're trying to be eye candy. You are setting yourself up for a dangerous situation, and more than that, you are in a very unloving way stumbling the natural physical tendency of men around you to be aroused and to cause them to gaze upon you with impure desires. And, and, and it's, it's not kind. It's not appropriate. The bigger tragedy at times is when I see young ladies dress like that and you try and talk to them and then the mom comes over and you think, now I know why she dresses like that. And, and here God says the attire of a harlot. She wore a certain clothing and, and dressed in a certain way to draw in. And again, why is this important? Because listen, if you're here and you're a, a mature, healthy sister in the Lord, talk to your sister once in a while. Honey, come here a minute. That's really not very wise. Honey, come here a minute. That's really not very loving. I have a husband. I'd prefer if you didn't dress like that. To me, that's just called wisdom. That's called love. And, and here he says, this is how he was drawn in. Look, pay attention. This is something, again, as wives, I think it's important to think about. As ladies, it's important to think about and recognize that physical attraction. She used it to draw in her husband. And guess what, ladies? You know how to do it even better for your own husband. Be someone who your husband is physically attracted to. Doesn't mean you have to run around looking like a Victoria's Secret model. And that's not what I'm trying to convey. But take into consideration, looking attractive for your husband is loving. It's loving. It's something that makes his eyes stay upon you and helps him to be attracted to you. Again, this, this harlot knew how to draw him in. It says as well of her verse 11, she was loud and rebellious. Her feet would not stay at home. So notice, we're seeing things. These are the kind of things that should be the red blinking lights. These are the kind of women he's saying, son, stay away from these kind. Those who dress in the attire of a harlot, those, notice, who are loud and rebellious. That is, you know, they have unhealthy traits. Rather than having a gentle, courteous, kind spirit, they're loud. They like to draw attention to themselves. They're rebellious. They don't stay at home. The idea is they have no respect for their household, no respect for their families. They're out and about. They want to go and run the streets and do their thing. They don't want to stay at home. They want to be out doing their thing, reliving their teenage years. At times, she was outside. At times, she was down in the open square, lurking at every corner. She caught him, and she kissed him with an impotent face. The idea is with aggression. She said to him, I have peace offerings with me today. I've paid my vows. The idea is she's acting somewhat religious and spiritual. Hey, I, I paid my vows to the Lord, so I came out to meet you diligently to seek your face. And I have found you, Romeo. That's not there, but I've spread my bed. Trying to make this a little easier as we finish up. I've spread my bed with tapestry, colored coverings of Egyptian linen. I perfume my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love. Now, you could strike out love and she put the word lust there. She's saying, come on, let's make love. This is not love. It's called lust. It's not love at all. But she, again, notice how the terms are always couched to make it feel better and sound better. Let's take our love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He's gone away on a long journey. He's taken a bag of money with him, and he will come home on the appointed day. In other words, 
She goes out and she capitalizes on this opportunity while her husband's away on a business trip. And she sets up this whole arrangement and literally while he's away seeking to do what's productive and you know generate money for the family, she capitalizes on this opportunity and goes out and he says, I watched this young man. He got drawn into this whole thing. And you can tell she is a very aggressive and forward woman. Verse 13 says she grabs him and she just kisses him, and then she just invites him home to go to bed with her. And, and all the language that she's using, again, acting like somehow it all sounds good. Let us take our fill of love until morning. Again, just changing terms and, and acting as, hey, we'll never get caught. My husband's away. And boy, that's a fitting bait and deception. No one will ever know. My husband's away. For, nobody will ever know. This can happen. It'll never come out. And again, all these things just become the selling points that end up leading someone into adultery or to sexual sin. I mean, look at verse 21. He says, with her enticing speech. Isn't that interesting? Enticing speech. The idea is she kept speaking, speaking, and, and it was like the speech. Is how he was getting drawn in. With her enticing speech, she caused him to yield. It was her speech. She kept saying the right things. Come on, come on. She caused him to yield. That is, he finally yielded, gave in to his restraint. With her flattering lips, she seduced him. Verse 22, immediately he went in after her. The idea is he was trying to yield, trying to yield. He says, I watched this young man. And then immediately, the idea is he made a snap decision. After a while, his restraint wore down and immediately he went in. The idea is, and, and this is very fitting to me, he instantly went from rationale to animalistic behavior. Immediately, he just changed his mind and he just gave in and the sexual lust overcame him. He went into her, look at the Bible's description, as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a fool to the correction of the stocks till an arrow struck his liver as a bird that hastens to the snare. He did not know it would cost his life. Man, God uses very fitting description. It's almost you can see Solomon saying to his son, listen, I saw this happen to a young man. He says, so son, if you're ever tempted to do this, if you find yourself in this struggle, he says, I want you to have this picture in your mind. Go out to Farmer Joe's and watch him put a rope around the ox's neck and watch him pull the ox along to this house where you're hearing, and, 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 and they're in there slaughtering animals, slitting their throats, and the blood is just draining out. And he says, keep that image in your mind. When you're ready to commit sexual sin, just get this image in your mind, like a rope around the ox's neck, just being drawn into the slaughterhouse and just willingly going into the slaughterhouse. And it has no idea that few steps... It's going to cost its entire life. And boy, this is such a fitting, sobering statement. Boy, I think of individuals who had no idea how much sexual sin would cost them. And it cost them their lives. Their whole life, in some ways, came crashing down. Now, therefore, he says, verse 24, listen to me, my children, pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Don't stray into her paths. For she has cast down many wounded and all who were slain by her were strong men. Her way is the way to hell, descending to the chambers of death. Verse 26, she has cast down many wounded. Notice that's always the end result. Right? We, we, we all can testify to that. We, we know that from personal experience or the lives of people we know, the wounds that go along with any form of sexual sin outside of the boundaries of marriage between one man and one woman. Wounds. Physical wounds. There are people in this room tonight. Psychological wounds, emotional wounds. Right, The wounds, the pain that we bring. And he says here of his son, look, that woman, he says, I've watched her bring down many strong men. Strong men. Men who were good, strong men. And she took them down. And look, I think this is very important because God help us 
God, help us to never read through verses like that, difficult as they are to go through, and think, yeah, man, I have people who do that. Oh, stupid, though. You know, what does the Bible tell us? 1 Corinthians 10. It says, when you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. Listen, build boundaries in your life, in your marriage. Do things God's way and wisely. Don't become that casualty. It can happen to the strongest of people through the